Racism and Donald Trump. Two topics never far removed from one another, it seems. From his early and long-running promotion of the Obama birther conspiracy to the latest tweet storm attacking the NFL and some of its players, Trump has been accused of injecting race into just about everything he does or says. So has it made a difference? Are we more divided racially than we used to be? We've been asking people these questions and a lot of others to get at the facts. And this time on Poll Hub, brand new Marist Poll results on the perceptions and the reality of race in the Trump era. Let's get started. Hi, everybody. This is Paul Hub. I am J.D. Dapper. I'm Barbara Carvalho. And I'm Lee Marengoff. And we're here in the Hancock Center at Marist College. And the Marist Poll has uh, done lots of surveys over a long period of time about race in America, has, as has every um, survey organization. This is not a new yeah, no, or foreign quite topic. Topical. Yes. Right. Um, we have just been through the first nine months of a term for president, term of president, that I, I think historically, at least in the modern era, um, it's hard to imagine one that has been more consumed about the discussion of race than the last president's first term, Barack Obama, because he was an African-American president, right? So we talked about race an awful lot. Even in the 60s, uh, it's, it's hard to think of a term of president in the first nine months that was more about race than this one. What is different? Where do we stand? What did you find when you asked these really deep and probing questions about race from the American people? Well, I think we found a lot of very interesting things here. And I think one that jumps out at me is... You know, presidents matter in terms of their words. Now, we've had a very unusual situation where the president tweets a lot, and that becomes sort of a, a whole new ball game. But we're seeing, you know, does Donald Trump affect the perceptions of people in just their interactions? And we're finding in this survey that, yeah, a lot of people think it's now more acceptable to say things that perhaps might not have been acceptable uh, at a different point. And we're seeing a 63% of African-Americans and a majority of Latinos, finding that it is really, um, you know, a whole new ball game when it comes to Donald Trump. And that's why I think in our lexicon, you know, things like white supremacist has now entered into the dialogue. And I think that's very different than we've had. So the 63 and, and 53 and, and even 44 percent uh, mm-hmm. of whites of plurality, when, when the poll says they find it more acceptable to make racist, uh, make racist comments, they're not saying they, it, they want to make racist comments. They're just saying that that, that that language is out there and it seems more acceptable than it used to be. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's probably yeah, a good I think interpretation. That's, I think that's their impression. I think there's an impression that we're having more of a discussion about race as well. Um, but the issue is, you know, how what, what can people... You know, say publicly. I think social media, you know, mentioned uh, the the president's tweets, but I think social media uh, allows people to say things to each other that perhaps we wouldn't say face to face. And I think that raises the intensity of um, language, especially racial language and a language that people find offensive. Um, And it has simply become 
part of our discussion for, for good and bad, because I think that part of the fact that we're talking about it is something that is a positive, even though the context of it um, is worrisome to many Americans. So this was an in-depth poll done for a show called Third Rail with Ozzy on WGBH up in, in Boston. Yeah, actually, it's a PBS show, so you people can see it nationwide, and it's a debate show. So they were asking, they wanted us to ask the question um, about whether, uh, you know, race has really become much more heightened now. And what else did you find? I mean, because it wasn't just one question. This was a, this, this went a long way towards uncovering and unpeeling where we stand as yeah. a nation in terms of the, what we think about when we talk about race. Yeah, I, I'm struck in, in these numbers also. We took a broader look at things, not just the, the Trump time, but a broader look. And we're seeing that a similar number of people tell us, as told pollsters 20 years ago, do whites have a better chance of getting ahead or do African-Americans have a better chance of getting ahead? And by about a 10 to 1 ratio... People think whites have a better chance of getting ahead in our society than well, African-Americans. Half, I mean, half of Americans think Both. that race does not that race is not a factor. That uh, regardless of color, people have an equal chance of getting ahead um, in this in this country. And what but what Lee does point out is those numbers really haven't changed since 50 years ago. I'm sorry, 20, 20 years, years ago. ago. The number's 50, but 20 years ago. That really, this really interested me because you asked whites, African-Americans, and Latinos, you asked by age about whether you agree um, that, that people of color need to fight harder to end racism versus white people. What struck you about those numbers? Well, I think what we found that was very interesting, we asked a question which uh, was, do you agree or disagree with the statement? People of color need to fight harder to end racism. And I think we were, most of us were surprised by the response to this. Um, a majority did disagree, uh, but then we did see that about 37% uh, of Americans agreed with that. And so when we looked kind of, we drilled down into the data, and so we thought, well, okay, maybe we're going to see, you know, a real, you know... Um, racial divide on A that. racial divide. Sure. Um, and we did see a racial divide, but not the one we expected. 32% of white Americans uh, agreed with the statement, thought that people of color should take responsibility for uh, fighting harder to end racism. But a majority, 57% of African Americans, agreed with that statement. The other, the other piece that, that is, kind of blows me away about this is look at the party ID. Democrats, 43% agree that people of color need to fight harder to end racism, and 28% of Republicans do. It just, is it, did people understand the question? Well, I think or, one of the things that Or am that I we missing did, something? No, I think one of the things that we found in this is that is very interesting is that people feel that all individuals should take responsibility for ending racism. In other words, there, there really shouldn't be um, a black, white, or white people of color divide on ending what they consider that something that is abhorrent to most Americans. And so um, I think people took this question personally um, and felt that they, that everyone did, and each one of us has responsibility to yeah, do so. I think there's a sense here also in uh, these different communities in the country, a sense of self-determination, that it's our responsibility uh, regardless of your group, that you're going to see if you're an African-American, you see it as 
you know, on you to also move things along. And I think we've seen some recent events on football fields and elsewhere where exactly that is occurring. People are stepping up because perhaps they feel Donald Trump is not going to, and therefore they have to. And we're going to. And 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 if they are going to get to the words of Martin Luther King, which was uh, said many years ago, obviously that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. I mean, we're seeing it bending, but we're seeing it bending very slowly. So there was there was a, an op-ed piece in the in the Times this week that that noted that two-thirds of Americans, and actually more blacks than whites at the time in 2001, described race relations as somewhat good or very good. And basically from Ferguson on, so during the late Obama years and on, it's just nosedive. It's crashed. The sense that race relations uh, are somewhat good or very good, and that's really happened with both uh, whites and blacks. Yeah. And I, I don't see Latino numbers. Um, is that it, clearly it started with Ferguson? So it's not Trump's fault. You can't blame Trump, but but it certainly seems like in the numbers you've pulled up here that when you look at people saying that it's that they believe it's far more acceptable to say the things, do mm-hmm. the things, uh, acknowledge the things yeah. that you couldn't a few years ago, that there's some correlation. Yes, and I think, look, when Barack Obama was elected president not too long ago, um, you know, the words that were being said were, are we entering (laughs) into a post-racial era in America? And I can't imagine anyone advancing that case right now, and certainly this data from this poll uh, suggests uh, by no means are we into a post-racial period. And I think we're polarized on a number of fronts, starting with our politics, and the more race gets thrown into our politics, I think the more we're going to see these kinds of racial issues. One of the triggers of talking about racism, of course, uh, uh, again, most recently has been this this NFL story with taking the knee. Uh, and we talked about a specific aspect of that weeks ago on, on Poll Hub. And that was a poll that purported to show that people were watching less NFL football because of the protests, the Colin Kaepernick's of the world taking the knee. And at the time, you pointed out, you know, you looked at the survey data, that it was BS, basically, right? Yes, the headline was misleading. And it was quoted again this week, all this time later, even after it had been debunked by you guys and by the Washington Post and a number of others. A new poll that got a lot of attention this week, Also, not up to snuff. Yeah, on college students and uh, whether they want to see different types of opinion and speakers that may offend different groups on their college campuses or whether they just want to have a very positive um, uh, experience at college and not deal with issues that they don't agree with. This gets at this whole like snowflake argument that's really popular in, especially in kind of conservative talk radio, is is naming these college kids who want to be protected from speech that makes them feel bad, and they you know there's all this kind of talk about that kind of stuff. You know, I think it's a and, tough and, issue for for campuses in terms of free speech versus uh, some restricted free speech. But in this particular poll, we're talking about a finding in quotes, that almost one in five people think that maybe even violence would be acceptable to disrupt the behavior of a speaker who you didn't like. And, and I think that's what really punched through that, uh, you know, we're sort of getting ready to have an armed camp on these campuses. And I think that is way beyond what it is. And maybe Barb should well, weigh me, in a little bit know, about how start, it was done. Let, let me start, though, by saying why this particular poll did get the traction that it did. Yes, it had a, you know, a very interesting headline. Sexy headline. 
Absolutely. But also, um, it, was, it was done by a professor at UCLA, a professor of electrical engineering and public policy. He's actually a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings uh, Center for Technology and Information. This guy, you know, is, is not a slack. Educationally, he has a PhD from Stanford. So it had a lot of academic cred credibility. But when we drilled down to see what the poll was about, um, although it was of college students, it was, a, it was a poll that was done where college students were allowed to opt in. In other words, they self-selected to take part in the survey. And so his, one of the big findings that he, that he found was this issue of the learning environment. And he found that a majority of college students actually wanted to create this positive learning environment. You know, the snowflake effect, which you, which you talked about, Jay. And Gallup actually did a very in-depth, representative, generalizable survey. Scientifically, they dotted all the I's and crossed all the T's and found actually the exact opposite, that only 22% of college students felt that way. And so it creates a very different, not only headline, but perception about what students Want? Could you go uh, back though? Also, you called this. You said that this was an opt-in survey, the one that the the guy at UCLA did. Could you explain? Yeah, a how bit was more? this? Well, I think what was yeah. interesting is there was a serious attempt to ask questions that either had been asked before. In fact, he asked the exact same question that Gallup had asked in their study with the Knight Foundation just a year ago, and so he was he was looking to get a a sense of uh, what college students. Uh, think, and I think he was making, you know, a solid attempt to do so, but part of the methodology was that um, UCLA, in their assistance with him, uh, got him a sample um, that was just uh, an opportunity for college students that perhaps are part of a panel um, could opt in, could self-select. So the researcher himself is not allowing the opportunity for any college student to participate, they're zeroed in on a self-selected so, group that might be interested in this topic so if, or if, who were part so of if this you panel. Were doing, if you were doing a poll on Trump versus Hillary, for instance, oh, um, good heavens, and, yeah. and it was self-selecting, what would your results have looked like? Uh, well, I wouldn't put credibility in whatever they looked like. If they had Clinton ahead, I wouldn't have because taken a look because at it's it. Or a if they had Trump. Yeah. And, and he, it's self-selected. And and the whole idea behind polling is that you're taking a sample as a researcher and you're giving people an opportunity to participate. And what we like to say is that everybody has a chance of being in the poll, or at least those people who you want to participate. So what's interesting here is that, it's, it, it, to me as a reporter, it checks two boxes that are immediately going to get my attention. One, it's a great headline, right? Everybody's Absolutely. talking about this. Two, oh, they contrasted it by asking identical questions oh, to sure. a former poll, to a poll just a year ago. Look at the change, because we love change. We love to report on change. And three is done by somebody who has and, academic credentials, right, so that, this is not a... So, so there's credibility. But, but here's so as a reporter, what should I have done? If I'm looking at this, what should have been my smell test to go, right. woo, well, this I, one's... I, I would have suggested you call around to some people in the public opinion community, and I was going to mention someone we we know, uh, Cliff Zukin, who's a professor emeritus at Rutgers, had been associated with Pew and former president of the American Association of Public Opinion Research. So stay with me for a second. He said that this survey 
um, had statements that were scientifically wrong and misleading, that a margin of error it claimed could be calculated in a non-probability sample, a little insider talk there, and he talks, the survey does, about the sample being probabilistically representative and that you could mention a, a margin of error and you could calculate it. Well, this is just not, I don't even know what probability probabilistically representative actually means. Uh, but what we're saying in a poll is if you interview a certain number of people, you can say within a range, with an estimate, what all college students would have thought had you interviewed all of them. So this thing goes down a very different path than what we would consider science and something that's recognizable. So if you touched base with some folks who have been doing you know, a lifetime of work and, and, and not the quick and dirty side of things. You would have found something that really went right up against what people who have been know, serving. I know, but it, it, that's, it's really, really hard. And we do look at media sources and particularly, um, you know, the big reputable media sources to, 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 to look at studies like this and, in a sense, to take the time and energy to vet them. And it was, a, it was an interesting headline. This just strikes me as, as if, it's too good to be, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is kind of rule of thumb. And I think that applies to polls as well for reporters or for anybody who's reading or tweeting uh, polls is if, if it sounds too good to be true or too different to be true – you ought to peel back the onion and take a closer look. Buyer beware. And before we go, um, I want to talk about something that's near and dear to my heart. Happiness. There's a poll that you guys wanted to talk about, and I love this. It's about what makes people happy. So a national, international study, 4,500 people uh, done uh, in association with the uh, National Academy of Sciences uh, took a look at what do people think in a series of countries, uh, what makes them happy, what makes them not happy in terms of their purchasing of items and do certain types of things work in terms of satisfaction or not. And you know what kind of interesting is? If you can buy things that save you time, save you, you know, work, you, you know, you can take out food as opposed to stay home and cook, you, you hop in a cab, uh, you might want to hire someone to help around the house or things like that, um, if you have the money. Uh, you know, these are things that, you know, work for a lot of people uh, in terms of um, correlating with happiness. But, you know, buying clothes, and I think someone's going to object very quickly to this, uh, buying clothes and other things, well, materialistic goods may be not as good because it doesn't really increase your leisure time. Barbara, equal time. So, well, I think with the study, is saying that actually money can buy you happiness, but it depends upon what you spend it on. And so it, we looked at Americans, they looked at uh, Canadians, they looked at people in Europe, and what they found was that if we can just get give ourselves a break from all the things that are, can be tedious and really drive us crazy on a daily basis, and we can get someone else to do it for us, we're happier campers for so, it. So getting back time in our lives is worth more than than almost anything. Is that basically what Paul's saying? Technology is an interesting sidebar in this because technology was, after all, going to be the answer to everybody's problems. Right. And now it's uh, sort of become a little bit of a end and of itself, a problem yeah, with itself. The, the other thing that strikes me about this is we hear a lot about millennials and, and you know, big groans. Sorry, people. But um, that generation is being more concerned 
about um, quality of time and quality of life, you know, fear of missing out, you only live once, all those kinds of phrases, um, than they do, uh, than previous generations may have felt. So, for instance, I was just um, dealing with this real estate um, transaction out in one of the suburbs of New York City, and the real estate agents were saying, look, the, the generation of people who are moving out of these big houses that they built for their families and their beautiful houses and all this, nobody's buying them in this millennial generation. And it's not just because there's financial reasons for that. There's obviously there's less economic wherewithal to be able to do that. Even the kind of post-millennial, just at the other side of the millennial generation, uh, they want to live closer to their work. They want to live in smaller houses because mm-hmm. they don't want to have to keep it up. Exactly. They, they're looking for time and quality of life time and, and walkability. They want to be able to walk into uh, into the village and to buy a slice of pizza and ha- instead of having to climb into their suburban and, and drive to a mall. And I heard this from four different real estate people I was interviewing to, to deal with this thing I had to deal with. And it really struck me that, you know, sometimes stereotypes like the millennial stereotype, sometimes there's some truth there. Yeah. Yeah, and I think also, and, though, it, you know, the survey doesn't suggest that this is what everybody wants to do with their lifestyle. In fact, not everybody's trying to do this. They still have the good old work, work ethic. People still want to work hard, get ahead, things like that. And some people actually feel a little guilty if they're starting figuring out a way to get an easy ride out of this. So there's a traditional sense of, you know, you know really giving your all. That's still there, too. But I think the study statistically did find that these millennial generation may be on to something. And that'll do it for Poll Hub this week. Uh, Poll Hub is produced by the team here at the Marist Poll at Marist College. And our executive producer is Mary Griffith, even though she doesn't want me to tell you that. Big secret, big secret. All right, so here's the bottom line. We want to see your questions. We want you to ask, you know, what do you want us to be talking about? Um, I feel sometimes like I'm in a class and, you know, you always ask, you know, show of hands if you have any questions and you need one person out there. Well, we've had people, but I want to get more people out there. Raise your hand. In this case, let us know, hear from you at pollhub at marist.edu. Well, you can also contact us on social media at Marist Poll on Twitter, Marist Poll on Facebook, Snapchat and Instagram. And wherever you are listening to us, just hit subscribe. All right, guys. Thanks. Have a good week, and we'll see you next time.